Micah 7. Longer text this morning as we wrap up the book, starting in verse 8. This is God's perfect word. Hear it, believe it, and know that it is for your good. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will not be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Thus ends Micah. It was filled with hard teachings, unpleasant circumstances, and the relentless warning that things will get worse before they get better. Even so, Micah ends with one of the most well-known expressions of praise for God's grace in the whole Bible. It was our assurance of pardon this morning, as it is often for many churches. How did Micah get from the darkness of his experience to the passion of his praise for God, his doxology? And if he can get from there to here, does that mean we can too? The answer to this first question is somewhat surprising. What? seems like the answer would be to ignore the darkness, to deny its darkness, to pretend that it doesn't hurt to live nearly every day in this world. But that's not what Micah does at all. It's actually by taking the darkness head on and examining it in detail that he finds his way through to gratitude and praise. The doxology at the end there, verses 18 through 20, you recognize as being a hymn, like in the Psalms or in our hymnals. It's a verse of a hymn. 
but it's just that. It's a verse of a hymn. If you look carefully at the passage, actually the whole thing, starting in verse 8, is a hymn with four stanzas. And that stanza of praise is the last one. The first three bookended by God's name, Yahweh, in verses 7, I'm sorry, verses 8 and 17. The first three explore the theme of God's salvation in increasing intensity. And the fourth is Micah's concluding expression of praise. And here's the thing. You don't get to the fourth without the first three. You simply do not get to praise apart from what takes place in the first three. Lady Jerusalem, she represents the city and the people of God. She speaks in the first verse. She's suffering, but she admits that her suffering is right. What you're seeing here is a song of true repentance. Children, this is a lesson I'm sure your parents tell you about often, but this is by no means a lesson just for kids. Several scholars I read make the point by drawing the contrast between Lady Jerusalem's words in verse 9 and those famous words of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Lady Jerusalem says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him and I will bear it until he pleads my cause, until he executes judgments for me. He will bring me into the light and I shall look upon his vindication. That's true repentance. Remember what Cain said? after he had murdered his brother Abel, and he now was receiving the indignation of the Lord, he said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Unrepentance only sees the effect of the punishment. Unrepentance only sees the effect of the punishment on the sinner. Cain says, I can't bear this. He does not see that it's right. He does not see that it produces hope for redemption. All he can think is how terrible this is for me. True repentance sees the effect of the sin its effect on the sinner, its effect on the world around the sinner, and its effect on God. Consequences for sin in this life, that kind of darkness, which is the indignation of the Lord, these are a gracious reminder from God. They're a warning of the dangers of sin. The darkness here apart from repentance and hope in God's forgiveness, warns us of a greater and unending darkness for those who do not repent and turn to God. Unrepentance cares only about the punishment. Repentance cares about the sin and the God who's offended by it. Lady Jerusalem can bear this darkness because she knows not only is this just, but this has a purpose of calling me back to God. 
It surely feels like it at times, but God has not abandoned them. That's not the right interpretation of the darkness, that God has left me. The darkness of life is not God's absence. It's his call. See where sin leads. Come back to me and find deliverance. All throughout scripture, this language of darkness, siege, and imprisonment is used to describe the plight of God's people. It's the same language used for Jesus on the cross as well. In some of these cases, like Jerusalem here, like our battle against cancer and unemployment and some of the circumstantial difficulties of this life, in some of these cases, what we need is physical deliverance from God. And it's right for them to cry out for it. But in all of the cases, and what all of these cases point to, is our need for spiritual deliverance from the power of sin and death. And sometimes, though it hurts us deeply, God brings about one to show us the other. Lady Jerusalem is in darkness. God brought about this darkness to show her her need for deliverance, not from Assyria, but from sin and death. And so it's dark in Jerusalem. The language here is of a dungeon. But she warns her enemies not to rejoice in her affliction. You see, her enemies are mocking her. They mock because they think they brought this darkness upon her. They think that they are victorious over her. But the truth, and she knows this truth about her own darkness, is that the light comes after it. She knows that when she turns back to God in faith and repentance, the yoke of burden will be removed and God will raise her up victorious. One pastor says, Micah makes no attempt to deny the sad plight of himself and God's people. The prophet pictures God's people as a man sitting in darkness with no light and no hope. But when Micah turns to faith in the Lord, the light pierces through the darkness. Sennacherib, the ruler of Assyria, is the one who mocked the people by asking, where is your God now? You've heard that question. You've heard that question from scoffers and unbelievers who see darkness in your lives when Christians are suffering or when the church appears weak and vulnerable. You've heard that question. Jesus heard that question on the cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he wants to. But Lady Jerusalem warns the ungodly against all such boasting. Yahweh, who was the accuser of his people when they were in sin, upon their repentance, becomes the advocate of his people. In verse 10, you see the deliverance and the roles are reversed. Now Israel has been restored and those who mocked her are covered in shame. Salvation includes both redemption for God's people and punishment for God's people enemies. We sang that in the psalm that we sang this morning. It's in 
all three of Micah's salvation stanzas, the both sides of this coin. And it's uncomfortable to talk about this second part, gloating in the destruction of our enemies. It seems unchristian. It doesn't seem right. One pastor says, though, part of God's salvation is to have his people behold the ruin of those who had afflicted them. And scripture says, not only will we see this, but we will rejoice. We will be glad. And right now, that sounds really wrong to our fallen minds. But when our thinking and affections are renewed on the day of Christ's coming, we will have the right and holy response to God's judgment against unbelief. Consider the Exodus. Maybe this will help. The greatest display of God's deliverance before the cross was the Exodus. And when Moses and the people were delivered, when they got to the other side of the sea, you know what they did. They sang a hymn. And you know the words of that hymn. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider have been thrown into the sea. Well, that sounds a little creepy. (laughs) That's Israel's song. There's actually a ton of connections between Micah's song here and Moses' song of praise there in Exodus. It uses the same language. Micah quotes that song directly here a couple of times. He uses a ton of the same words. And both of these songs are written about the same thing. God's incomprehensibility. Who is a God like this? That's what both hymns are about. That's the right response to deliverance. But what caused Israel's rejoicing? What were the immediate events that caused Israel to sing out in praise to God? Pharaoh's soldiers were destroyed. Their enemies were crushed beneath the waves of the sea. And they sang in praise specifically about that. The horse and its rider thrown into the sea. It sounds a bit macabre, doesn't it? But don't you get why they sang? And wouldn't you have sung too? God delivered them from something. He didn't just deliver them from the abstract. He doesn't just save you from whatever. He saves you from an enemy who is prowling around seeking to devour you. He saves you from something. We must remember that working behind all our enemies in this life, all the darkness we experience is the devil. And if we can imagine rejoicing upon seeing his final judgment and destruction, surely we can also imagine feeling likewise about the destruction of those who dedicated their lives to carrying out his purpose. I'm not saying we can do that well now. But on that day, we will rejoice. Israel's darkness is caused by her own sin. And Micah doesn't get from there to doxology by pretending it isn't dark. Only as he exposes the cause of the darkness, sin, and in this first verse, their own sin. But as he exposes the darkness and therefore the possibility of escape through repentance, 
That's when the light that follows comes into focus. If you think that the darkness of this world is random and arbitrary and purposeless, then you can have no hope in anything to make it go away. But if you examine the darkness closely, and you see that it is and is always caused by sin, then God's offer of forgiveness for sin and the renewal of all things is the light that will pierce that darkness, any darkness. And seeing that, Micah can't help but praise the grace of God. There is no one like Yahweh. The second and third stanza of Micah's hymn, they tell the same story. The sin has different causes, and the language of deliverance is amplified. Look at the way he amps it up. In the first verse, uh, Micah's first stanza, verses 8 and 9, it describes Zion as rising and being able to look up. Well, that's pretty good. That's a lot better than being cast down. But in the second verse, verse 11, Her walls are enlarged. That's even better. Her territory is increasing. And in the third stanza, verses 14 and 15, she enjoys God's personal care and she sees him doing marvelous things. The amplification happens with the description of God's judgment against his enemies as well. In verse 10, they're merely trampled in the mud. But in verse 13, the unbelieving world is made desolate. And in verses 16 and 17, even the unbelievers have to acknowledge that Yahweh is the one true God and to fear him and his people. Every stanza maintains this connection between darkness and light. There are hardships and difficulties in life in this fallen world. Our own sin makes things dark. God's temporary punishments to call us back to himself make things dark. The sin of others and unbelievers in this world, the curse against the world itself, it all makes things dark. But on closer inspection, this darkness does not overshadow what God has done for us in salvation. It reminds us exactly what he's saving us from. Micah is the speaker in the second stanza, verses 11 through 13. In Jerusalem, the city he inhabits will be destroyed. This is darkness that comes from outside. The Assyrians have surrounded. They won't ultimately conquer here. The Babylonians will later. And then finally, Rome. Actually, it's funny because the Babylonians will destroy Jerusalem. But then 50 years later, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And the Jews go right back to their sinning, right back to their disobedience in God and their refusal to trust him. And so finally, God destroys Jerusalem again, this time irreparably in AD 70. So much darkness on account of the people's unbelief. But look at this verse. In this stanza, through the darkness, it's the destruction of these cities that helps Micah to see that God has a greater indestructible city planned. You could keep rebuilding Jerusalem. The pagans are just going to keep burning it to the ground. But God is building a city, an eternal city, the church, that will last forever. 
And it says here the city is not just going to welcome Israelites. It's going to welcome all who has faith. They're going to come from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from the nations that were enemies. God will make them friends. And from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. It's only as he deals truthfully with the darkness that Micah can see the light that will eventually pierce it. The third stanza is a dialogue between Micah and God. In the verse 14, he asks God to provide for his people by shepherding them. The sheep have gone astray. Why do sheep go astray? Because they lose sight of their shepherd. It's their fault. They wandered. We're prone to wander. Don't you feel it? Prone to leave the God you love? And so he prays for the people that God would shepherd them. He knows that God loves to save. When we wander from the shepherd, we wander into darkness. And we cannot, we will not confess our sin and turn back to God unless he first shepherds us with his staff. And so as Israel wanders in darkness, Micah calls out to God to move into the lives of his people to shepherd them. And you know what? It always works. It always works. Calling out to God to change our circumstances may or may not work. We can't know the will of God. So we pray for circumstances to change, may or may not change, depending on his will. But calling out to God to bring us out of darkness and into his light always, always, always works. Asking God to bring us closer to him. And faith always works. God answers Micah in verse 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. God says, you thought that was something? Hold my beer. Watch what I do now. That's that connection to the Exodus again. And that was pretty amazing, right? The ten plagues, and then God leads them out of Exodus, and God parts the Red Sea, and he crushes Pharaoh's army. That was unbelievable. And God says, you think that was something? I will show you marvelous things. Your future has even greater wonders. Another man observed the exodus that Christ affords his church, bringing them out of a world of sin and judgment and setting them on their heaven-bound journey through the wilderness involves far greater wonders. We think it would be amazing to have seen God bring about those plagues and bring us through the Red Sea. But what God himself says in scripture again and again and again is that what he did in us is even more miraculous. What he did on the cross of Christ makes that exodus pale in comparison. Wanting our circumstances to change, wanting the the temporary darknesses of life to lift is not wrong, but it's short-sighted. We're looking too small In Christ, God shows us a hope and a future that are marvelous, far beyond our imaginings. And yes, part of that salvation is the effect it has on those who refuse it. 
In this stanza, on the negative side of the coin, Micah focuses on their shame. The nations shall see and be ashamed. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. This is humiliation language. C.S. Lewis depicts this really well. This is how the white witch felt when she saw Aslan slain on the stone table and she and her minions mocked and rejoiced in his defeat. But then that look on her face in what she presumed would be her hour of triumph to see the risen Aslan. And it's as if her hand goes over her mouth. Kids, do you know what God says to the unrepentant here? It's in the Hebrew, so I'm allowed to say it. He says, shut up. Not be quiet. Shut up. You thought you were better than God's people. You thought you were better than I, the one true God. You compare the things that are happening in your lives and the things that happen in the lives of believers, and you think you've won. You look at the church of Jesus Christ in the world and you think you've won and you mock and you rejoice and now you will be silent. They gloat because they think they're winning. But it's like one of those embarrassing sports clips where they spiked the ball and started their victory dance just short of the end zone. And so once they realize that God is actually the victor, they are completely silenced. They rejected God, and he turned out to be exactly who he said he was. They mocked God's people for their faith, but their God did exactly what he said they would do. They even mocked the times of darkness in our lives, the difficulties and hurts that we faced. But they did not see what Micah sees, that in that darkness, God was always intervening to save his people from their sins. Micah paid attention to the hardship and the trials and the suffering of this life. He looked at it carefully enough to see that they were not caused by God, but by sin, sometimes even by his own sin. By looking honestly at the darkness, he could see that God did not make the mess that our lives have become. It was not God who put us in bondage to sin and self. We did that. But in Christ, God did enter into that darkness. Many of the words in verse 18 mirror Isaiah 53's description of the suffering servant. These texts are brothers about the same thing. It's also very similar language to Psalm 22, which is what Jesus applied to himself and what he fulfilled at his crucifixion. The darkness is real. For Israel, for Micah, for you, the darkness is real. But Micah gets from darkness to praise because he sees always in the darkness God's intervention to redeem us from it. Another pastor said, Jonah learned in the belly of a great fish that salvation belongs to the Lord. And Micah learned the same lesson in his dark hours. You look into the darkness and you see you can do nothing to save yourself. You look into the darkness and you see no prospect for change in an unbelieving world. You see no mercy on the faces of your enemies. And Micah asks, how can such a depraved people be spared by a holy God? 
And then he remembers. God delights in mercy. And there he rests his burdened heart. That's where the unrestrained praise in the final verses comes from. If you want to be able to honestly utter words like these in the darkness of your life, all you can do is what Micah did. Rest your burdened heart in the mercy of God. By acknowledging what we're being saved from, Micah has been raised above the difficulty of his present situation in order to see from a a spiritual vantage point the brightness of his future in Christ. When the darkness comes upon you, remember, this is what God is saving you from. And remember that he acts first. God first made a covenant with us because we didn't want it. He was the first to keep that covenant because we broke it. He offered forgiveness for our covenant breaking even when we weren't asking for it. And that God goes first is what makes even our faithfulness, meager as it is, possible. We can obey because we're not obeying because we have something to earn or something to prove. We can obey because God first planted in our hearts love for him and love for for neighbor. We obey not because we need to be forgiven, but because we can rest our burdened hearts in the knowledge that forgiveness came first. Micah spent his life listening to scoffers. You can relate. Micah spent his ministry toiling in a world that didn't want to listen. I won't say I can relate, but I can. And because of all this hardness of heart, Micah's country is collapsing around him. Things are grim. They are dark. But against that darkness, the light of God's brightness shines through. It pierces the darkness. Micah knows that's what he needs. He knows that even he, the prophet of God, is not faithful enough to deserve his chains be broken. Even he cannot vindicate himself against the charges of his accusers. That's not what he says. He says he can be vindicated the same way we can be vindicated, by the grace of God. God must vindicate us. Voltaire, the French Enlightenment philosopher, really hated Christianity. (laughs) At one point, he boasted famously that because of his work, because of his philosophical brilliance, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. He said, it's a great line. It's horribly blasphemous, but it's a great line. He said, my single hand will destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to build. What a mocker. But of course, 20 years later, Christianity had not been forgotten, even by Voltaire himself. Because on his deathbed, the doctor who attended him recorded the words of his bitter end. He said, I am abandoned by God and man. 
He said to the doctor, I will give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me six months more life. Just six months and then I shall go to hell. And he cried out, oh Christ, oh Jesus Christ. And he died. And Voltaire, though also not forgotten, was dead. And a mere 50 years after his arrogant claim in God's sense of justice and humor, his old house, the house where he said those words, was a printing office where copies of the Bible were mass-produced to be distributed all throughout France. Don't you wonder, in the days of Voltaire, how many French Christians enduring his ridicule and the ridicule of the culture he emboldened. Do you wonder how many Christians prayed, I will wait for the God of my salvation? However many it was, without a doubt, God answered, and he showed them marvelous things. We don't have to ignore the darkness and the pain of this world in order to follow Christ. In fact, we may need to look at it more closely. Micah saw the darkness of his age, and in it he saw the darkness of sin, and therefore saw the light of Christ and salvation all the brighter. In one language or another, God's people have been saying post-tenebras lux for thousands of years, after darkness, light. And it's a saying that acknowledges the darkness. We made this darkness. We live in this darkness. This darkness hurts us daily. It does us no good to pretend anything else. But the saying also acknowledges that for those who admit their own helplessness to push through the darkness on their own, the light will come. It will break through and it will get them. First, for justification, breaking death's claim on you in the world to come. And then for sanctification, breaking sins hold on you in the world here and now. Neither parts of your salvation, neither your justification nor your sanctification, rids the world of darkness in this present evil age. But through both, the light of God pierces And so believe in him and see the light of God pierce through the darkness and shine on your heart and follow him. Follow him closely so that it breaks through and by your life shines on many others. 